0: Before I pray quickly, I just want to thank some folks, some some special visitors that we have today. Some folks that I had the privilege of pastoring back in uh, Newark when we were there. Came the Polnott family, Mike and Stacy, and uh, right there in the middle, there you are, Mike and Stacy and their kids, Michaela and Kenny. It's so nice to have you. Thanks for coming. Good to see you. Let me uh let me pray for us, and we'll we'll begin. Father, I thank you for the time that you've given to us to gather around what your Son has accomplished for us. Lord, I pray that uh, our souls would be opened by your Holy Spirit to hear your Word. That, Father, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to take hold of uh, what has been accomplished for us as a means to understanding what is now uh, the calling that comes to us. So, Father, would you help me speak clearly and uh, in a way that enables everyone to understand. Father, I pray that you would guide my heart and my mind while I speak, that you would be in control of my tone, my content, my delivery, everything. Father, may you be glorified. May every eye see, may every ear hear and come to Jesus. And this I ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. There was a movie that came out, I think. About 2004, it was another. It was an updated version of the King Arthur story, and this time it was just called King Arthur, and it starred uh, Clive Owen as as King Arthur. But it focused on the earthy side, the actual history of it that allegedly the legend came from. In the big battle scene at the end, the Battle of Baden Hill, the leader of the this Anglo-Saxon horde that was invading in through Northern England. Uh, the villain named Serdic. he's meeting with Arthur. You know, they have their little parlay just before the battle. There was just a this massive Anglo-Saxon army, very small army, if you could even call it an army, in support of Arthur. And Serdic says to him, the Anglo-Saxon king, I guess, says to him, wherever I go on this wretched island, I hear your name. Always half-whispered as if you were a god, and all I see now is, Flesh and blood. You're no more God than the horse you're sitting on. And Arthur says back to him, speak your terms, Saxon. So Serdic says to him, well, the Romans have left you. What are you fighting for? And Arthur says, I fight for a cause beyond Rome's or your understanding. And Serdic says to him, look, I've come to make a truce here. You should be on your knees. And Arthur says, I came to see your face so that I alone May find you on the battlefield and it would be good for you to mark my face, Saxon. For the next time you see it, it will be the last thing you see on this earth. And as Arthur rides away, Serdic is looking at him and says to his back, ah, finally, a man worth killing. And it's just, it's such a good movie moment. A man worth killing to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and most of Israel, to the Romans seeking political expedience, Jesus Christ had to be killed. He had to be crucified. He was so different, right? He was so different. The reasons uh, for which He lived were so against the grain of the world that the only solution for everybody involved was to kill Him. That's how serious the world takes its hope in itself to save itself. If somebody threatens the world's hope, they immediately become worth killing, worth doing away with. And the sojourners and exiles to whom Peter was writing were starting to realize just how against the grain it is to have your hope in Christ and not the things that the world hopes in. Peter was there the night they arrested Jesus, the man writing this Letter, he saw it for three and a half, four years. He saw the way that people responded to Jesus, even though all Jesus did was good to others. Nobody served humanity with such kindness and compassion and patience and power as Jesus, and our response to Him was to kill Him, to murder Him. Beloved, the lives we are called to live will make us worth killing to the world the world does not believe it needs a savior and our hopeful presence that Peter's calling for is a constant reminder to them that they are wrong beloved we cannot avoid the friction and first Peter has been written so that we wouldn't try to avoid the friction and the friction isn't meant to come from our stance against things. That, that It's meant to come from the fact that we do not need the world's systems and structures to serve us. We are aliens here. In chapter 3 this morning, Peter referenced Jesus as the example and proof that glory will follow the suffering to which the elect exiles in Asia Minor were called. And for us, those who believe in Jesus for their salvation will endure through the rejection of the world and be vindicated along with Jesus Christ. Now may we hear and believe the word of God together. I'll begin in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But So our text this morning moves in two phases. Instructions and then the rationale for them, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. Although we probably need to take all the instructions. By the time we get to verse 18, I think all the instructions that are in 2.11 to 3.17 are in view there. These were instructions for how to live precisely because we are God's people in this world. Because He's made us His own. And through Christ we've received mercy. Now keep in mind, Peter has been arguing now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a life of subjection to people and authorities that will bring us unjust suffering and the sorrow that flows from it. And his reasoning in this, his ground for it, is the example of Jesus. Walking in the footsteps of Jesus will lead us through life, getting reviled like He was, getting threatened like He was, oppressed like He was. It will be difficult But living with hope in the midst of that will so beautifully display Christ that we will actually win a hearing among those who are persecuting us or are against us or those to whom we've subjected ourselves. There's something about that, Peter is saying. He has been for a while now. There's something about that. This lifestyle that displays Christ so clearly, His presence cannot be mistaken. Or the fact that there's something radically different that is worth understanding and identifying cannot be mistaken. So Peter's exhortation in light of what he's been saying in verse 13 sounds a little strange. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Apparently everyone, right? I mean, everyone is going to harm us. What Peter is talking about though is the reality of our innocence, of our blamelessness when we live this way. When we live with our eyes fixed on Christ with hope in subjection to even unjust authorities. This goes back to verse 20. And what is gracious in the sight of God. We do not need to fear anything when we are living our lives submitted to the Lord's will for us in this text. We don't need to be afraid of anything. If we are submitting and subjecting ourselves with our eyes on Christ, we won't be guilty of anything they accuse us of. I mean, many of the martyrs, if you just think of the first century alone, they were accused of sedition and treason against Caesar, of trying to overthrow him. That wasn't what they were doing. That's what they were accused of. That isn't what they were doing. They weren't planning to go to war. They weren't planning to overthrow him. They were just proclaiming that the real king of the world is Jesus and He must be submitted to. If we are zealous for what is good, if our eyes are fixed on Christ, then even if we are punished, and we most likely eventually will be, it's because we're doing good. That's verse 14. Have no fear of them. That is, those in authority, those we're in difficult relationships with, those who are pressuring us or threatening us, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them. God sees. God knows. God knows. Instead, instead of being afraid, instead of doubting God's word and deciding you'll have to fight for your right to exist in this world and be treated with respect, instead of fighting for that and living your life to get that, hear verse 15 instead. Listen to this, but, you see that in 15, the contraction there. he's, He's telling us this is a different way to think. This is the opposite. It's a contrast. It's an alternative. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, that's what they're reviling, may be put to shame. I said contraction earlier. I think I meant conjunction. Sorry about that. Just dawned on me. The, the The context of this passage is faithful submission in a fallen world. That's the context of the passage. So, being prepared to give a defense for our hope here, beloved, is not about apologetics. It's not what he's talking about here. It's not about defending Christianity in the public square. That's not the context. It's not even speaking immediately of what we might normally think of as evangelism. This is about the chance to explain why we are suffering. Why we're willing to put ourselves in this position. Why are we willing to be subject to things that are against us? That's the context here. That's what this is about. If in our hearts we are heavenly minded, you see that? If in your heart you're heavenly minded, you're fixed on Christ... If the eyes of our hearts are fixed on Him and His example, His witness of a holy life. That's what you're seeing when you look at Him. His witness of a holy life that was free from the need to get or gain in this world. And His willingness to suffer unjust judgment at its hands. If you fix your eyes on Him and He shapes your life because that's who He is, you are going to be worth killing to the world, so to speak. You will stick out. And not for what you're saying necessarily, but for the way you have hope in the midst of a suffering you are not trying to avoid at all costs. You're not deliberately trying to bring it on. You're just not trying to keep it from happening. Because when your hope is on Christ, when you're fixed on Him, it's just going to happen is what Peter is saying. He's not saying go out and try to stir up trouble for yourself. He's saying exactly the opposite. He's saying if you live with hope, there will be trouble. It will get you noticed. You will stick out. He's preparing them. And by the Holy Spirit preparing us to live a certain way that He knows is going to bring sorrow and suffering. People will be wondering why we endure without complaining. They'll be wondering how we endure without panicking the unjust decisions and treatment of those in authority over us. And when they ask us why we are like that, because they will, then we can actually explain the reason for the hope that is within us. You see how that works? And then notice here, our tone, our defense is not, this defending is not in a tone of anger, or fear, or defensiveness, or panic, or frustration. We respond, we answer with gentleness. Gentleness. Because what do we have to be freaked out about? We respond with respect. Respect for sinners. Respect for our enemies. Respect for those we are in subjection to. Respect for those who at the hands of them we are suffering unjustly. We respect them. We respond to them with gentleness and respect so that we can tell others what we actually look to and trust in God, that He will raise us up in His good time, so we'll be fine. Therefore, we don't expect to receive better treatment than Jesus did. We understand that. To live with hope means we do not expect to be treated better than Jesus was. It's crazy to think we can live like Jesus did. And hope like Jesus did and everything will go well for us. It didn't go well for Jesus. Why do we think we have the right to demand that the world respect our religion? Where did that come from? Jesus didn't demand that. God will vindicate us on the last day. That's our hope. God will take care of shaming our enemies. We treat our enemies with gentleness and respect. God has the right to call them out on the carpet. We do not. We assume that we have to use power and pressure and influence and force a hearing to squeeze our way in and demand a voice. Can we consider something difficult this morning? Are we willing to consider something difficult to hear It may be no wonder that the voice of Christianity is waning in America. We blame the culture. We blame its increasing unwillingness to listen to us. But why would people listen to people who don't have anything unique about them, like real hope? What separates our voice from any other truth claim in the world if we do not have the hope Scripture calls us to? Why give a hearing if you're in the world to another demanding, shrieking voice that we're right and everybody else is wrong? Why give a hearing to that if you're a member of the world? We can argue the nuances all day. The fact remains that forcing our ways and demanding a hearing are not the way of Christ. And consider just how much of our evangelism is built on threats and fear-mongering, Beloved, the call here is to have a hope worth defending. That's the calling. A hope so potent the world can't deny it. Hope, that's a specific thing. Hope is something. We we don't decide what hope is and then say, you know, you, you people will be asking us to defend it. No, they'll be asking us to defend our hope, not something else. That's why we're followers of Jesus. That's... That's what Jesus had. He had hope. He he displayed hope. It drew us to Him. It pierced our hardened hearts in the proclamation of the Gospel. Jesus teaches us in His Word that many of our problems with being unsuccessful in evangelism would be solved when we as His people remember the truth that's in the Gospel we're proclaiming. it's, It's almost like it becomes to us this body of our truth that we have to convince other people to believe and we forget that it is the same message that is currently saving us, whereas we are in as much need of the gospel we proclaim as the people to whom we are proclaiming it. We need to remember that Jesus Christ has accomplished our salvation, beloved that we've been made into His people, that He has shown us His mercy, that He will keep His promise to us. We are going to have to fall out of love with finding a home in the world and trust Jesus Christ completely. We need our own souls transformed by the power of living hope or what we have will sound no different and look no different to a watching world. Just in your own heart consider this warning not in a way that crushes any of you, but in a way that that pushes your eyes towards Jesus, when was the last time one of us was asked why we had so much hope? Have you ever had to defend your hope? not asking you if you've ever had to defend your beliefs. I'm asking you if you've ever had to defend your hope. Peter says that is what we want to be prepared to do is to defend our hope. We are normally trying to drum up new strategies that assume evangelism will be successful when the right technique is used. Or when we hold the right places in power. Then people will understand. Then people will listen. Because they'll have to listen. Because we have a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. That's why we think that way. We don't win by asserting ourselves. Jesus didn't defeat His enemies by killing, but by dying so that they might live. And we find our salvation in that very same message. God's Word says, listen, have something worth defending. Like God doesn't need us to defend Him or the truth of the Gospel. We're meant to be transformed by the truth of the gospel to the degree that it makes us noticeably hopeful people in the midst of everything we're going through. Hope doesn't always look like a a silly smiling face either. Hope is what it is. Hope is hope. Hope is visible when a response to things that would normally take you out is not the same. It doesn't mean we can't cry. It doesn't mean we can't weep. It doesn't mean he just has made the point. We'll be enduring sorrow. It will be a part of our lives. He's not saying that you need to be, you know, on top of the world all the time and, you know, plastering a, a fake smile on your face all the time. He's saying, no, you have hope. You, you don't get sucked in to the fear that the world lives with that everything's not going to go their way. This is the hope of the one who knows Christ. The most important person or the first person to evangelize in our lives with the hope that Jesus gives in the Gospel is ourselves. All through this text is the Bible's clear teaching, right? That the life that results from believing these things are true has a spiritual a heavenly power in its likeness to Christ to accomplish what more words and louder voices and more strategies cannot. Beloved, the takeaway from a text like this then is to believe the gospel. Don't get burdened like, I I haven't done this, people haven't asked me about my hope, I'm, I'm falling short. That's not the point of that admonishment. The point of it is, the solution to it is to look to the one who has saved you in spite of the fact that you can't get this right. The hope is always in Christ. It's not to look at the text and say, well, you know, I, I can't do it anyway, so who cares? It's to look at the text and say, this is what is required of me. I can't do this. I haven't done this. So where do you look? You look to Christ who saves you in it and it builds your hope. That's what we're looking for. Christ is always the answer in the text. Always. Believe the gospel. Let it get inside your soul. Let it get into your bones. Let it transform your hope. Peter's point here is interesting. There have always been philosophers, even pagan ones. There have always been moralists and religious leaders of new cults or new religions that teach very high standards of of ethical conduct. There's nothing magic about that. There's really, at the end of the day, nothing unique about it. Moralism isn't new. Living by principles isn't novel. It's not what makes us distinct. It's not what Paul's letter is calling us to. He calls us, or Peter, he calls us to holiness in the beginning, and then he talks for the whole letter about hope. Moralism is, is now, according to Paul, in Colossians, for example, in Galatians, earthly. It's elementary principles of the world. We are a people who are defined by something different. And that, that is what makes us distinct. What makes us holy is hope. It's First John again. That's what purifies us. This is what gives potency to our message. Hope and love later in the New Testament are the distinguishing marks of the people of God in this present evil age. Hope and love. Is that how we are defined by the authorities and by our enemies, and, and those are the hopeful and loving people. Instead, we try to force them to listen to us by gaining power. How, how can we proclaim the sufficiency and the beauty of Jesus when we live lives that say, I get no more tangible hope from salvation than I do from getting my favorite candidate elected, whoever that may be. Jesus believes the hope that is ours in him through the gospel is so life-preserving that you can live in gentleness and respect toward your greatest enemies, towards the biggest threats to your earthly freedom. This is what Jesus has for us in the gospel. This is a believe the gospel issue. That's what we're facing here. Come away, beloved, from the world. Come away from it. Be separate from it. Come out of it. Come away from the lies that this world can sustain your soul. That you need it to work for you. You do not. That you need a home here. We don't. Beloved, we're already dead. We have died. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Hope, beloved, this will soon be over. This is a blip. Hope. It's better in verse 17 to suffer unjustly at the hands of the world than to deserve their punishment by provoking their anger. Do you see that? We'll have to honor the emperor, as Peter said earlier, even if he's a tyrant, if we want to obey God's word. Until the emperor tells us we can no longer worship Jesus. The assumption here from Peter by the Holy Spirit is that when we do not provoke the powers that be with demands, but instead submit ourselves to them in hope, we will pave the way to obey that proclaiming command from chapter 2, verse 9. There's a way for that, pro- that proclaiming mission to take place. So those are the instructions. This is the rationale now. This is why, as, as we work through this text these last what two or three weeks, with all this subjection and submitting... Now I think comes the centerpiece of the rationale here. Look at verses 18 through 22. For, because Christ also suffered once for sins, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. See, that's the, that's the template. That He might bring us to God. but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, hear the word, subjected to Him. This is a traditionally debated text. I mean, it's hard at least on a surface reading to make sense of all the individual pieces. We'll try a little bit, but... I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. Context shapes meaning. Peter's main idea in these verses is not a doctrine of baptism. That's not the main idea. It's not the specifics of what happened to Jesus immediately after his death. The main idea, that the Bible has, God's Word has come to us as a book, in written form. This is a letter to a certain group of people in a certain real historical time. And now, by the preserving hand of God, it has come to us as a body of literature. Divinely inspired, authoritative, perfect, without error, sufficient for us. So we want to read, we want to respect the fact that God has written to us the main idea In verses 18 through 22 is the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main idea here. This text is here to hold up this calling we have to suffer, to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. It's the rationale for it. The text starts with Christ's sufferings. You see, and it ends with His ascension. You see that? There's a deliberate and linear flow of thought to this text. Verse 18 starts with Jesus' willful submission to unrighteous rulers. But by the end of it, by the end of this little paragraph, a complete reversal has taken place, hasn't it? By the end of this text, the formerly submissive son is the ruling king seated at the right hand of God and everything, all angels, authorities and powers are now subjected to him. The tables have turned. What's the purpose? What is Peter trying to tell us here? Jesus Christ, the once suffering servant, was completely vindicated and now sits victorious forever in heaven. There are two markers here that help us navigate. The first is Peter's use of that word subject again. We've got to remember now for almost two full chapters, you have 2.13, 2.18, 3.1. Peter has been calling the church and those in the church to the seemingly impossible task of submitting to ungodly authority in their life. But in this little paragraph, the tables have turned. Again, these same authorities and powers now all of them and all the angels, fallen and unfallen, have been subjected to Jesus Christ. Christ is victorious. So Peter's intention here is clear, isn't it? He he wants to encourage followers of Jesus with the final outcome. What comes after suffering. To walk in the footsteps of Jesus is not just to suffer unjustly. To walk in the footsteps of Jesus is to walk in to incontrovertible, irreversible, eternal glory. That is also what it is to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in this world. Turning our eyes to heaven, that's always the strategy. Turning our eyes to heaven. We think primarily of the second coming of Christ almost exclusively in terms of like, you know, when and how and all these markers. You've got to figure it all out. And Peter says, you've been told this for your hope so that you might accomplish your mission. So that word, seeing that word again, subject, or the form of it subjected to here, is an intentional marker for us to remember the context of the letter. And, in addition to that, is Peter's reference once more, to to something he's done twice now, to our relationship with Christ. This is the third time Peter's brought the sufferings of Jesus to our minds. It's the third time in the letter. First, he told us about his costly death for us in one eighteen and nineteen. Then he told us of his suffering example for us in 2.21. So notice that the aspect of the work of Christ that Peter emphasizes for the most part, or has so far, has been the death, the suffering of Jesus. But the third time, this time, Peter appeals to his resurrection from the dead and his ascension. Jesus was made alive in verse 18 in the Spirit. He's gone into heaven in verse 22. That's a very different emphasis from the first two references to Jesus, So verses 18 through 22 are not about the weight of submission or suffering or death. They are about the final victory that will be gained through those things. So Peter is lifting our hearts and minds to heaven in the midst of this world because the once-suffering Christ is already seated in heaven. That's where this letter is ultimately coming from to the people of God. It's coming from the right hand of God. He's saying, take heart then. That's what he's saying. Look, you take heart. You are going to win also. The main thrust of this text is that those who believe in Jesus will get through the rough water of this life. Like the eight who survived in the time of the flood, you too will be left standing on the final day. Noah was vindicated. Jesus was vindicated. You and I, believer, will be vindicated. That's how all the understandably confusing talk, I think, about where Jesus went when he died and what baptism does. I think that's where they find their place. They have to be seen in context here. Let me read 18 through 21, just to get our heads around this one more time. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I believe Peter is saying is that in the spiritual sense, in verse 19, Jesus was preaching through Noah to unbelievers, those who are now in eternal prison for their unbelief. When the ark was being built, it, it, it's it, it's hard. I think hard to see. I think the verbs throw us off because we think he he went right after he died and proclaimed something to spirits in prison. If I if I say. President Trump was born in such and such a year. He's the president now. He wasn't the president when he was born. Does that make sense? He wasn't the president the year that he was born. But I say President Trump was born in blank. I think that the same type of structure is here. Jesus was preaching through Noah to unbelievers, those who are now in eternal prison, for their unbelief when the ark was being built. There's a reason. The reason we think that is not just the structure, but the context. There's a reason for bringing this up here for Peter. It's not just like, oh, that's right, I need to teach on this doctrine of what Jesus did when he died. There's a reason here. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. Just like these elect exiles in Asia Minor, and just like us. Noah believed the word of God in the midst of the world's hostility. Just like you and I are now being called to do Noah's enduring faith to keep building was an undeniable witness to those around him that he believed the word of the Lord, just like our hope will be to those around us. It's like we're building the ark in a sense. It looks insane to the world, but they have to ask about it. God was patient in those days as God is now. Peter brings that up in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, doesn't he? He references the patience of God. God was patient in those days. He is patient now. While His faithful ones are maligned, He did see. God was aware. And what happened? The flood of judgment did come and Noah was vindicated. So, as a visible reference then, baptism, Peter says, oh, there's that ceremony we do when someone comes to Christ. That corresponds to being saved through suffering. That's what it's kind of a picture of. Baptism saves us in the way that it represents salvation by referring to escaping from the flood. It is not the outward physical ceremony that saves, but the inward spiritual reality that baptism represents in the substance to which the picture points is a Savior, beloved. That's what, that's what he's saying. That's what immersion shows. The complete washing of the body, like the flood completely washed away people, The waters of baptism are like the waters of judgment in the flood. Both show clearly in that light what we deserve for our sins. Coming up out of the water of baptism corresponds to being kept safe through the waters of the flood and emerging to newness of life. It's all a picture, is what Peter is saying. There are reference points for us in our life together as a church to give us hope. Baptism shows us clearly that in one sense we have died and are raised again. But in another sense we emerge from the waters knowing, realizing that we're still alive. We've passed through in the reference to Noah, the waters of judgment unharmed. It's a picture of it as Noah fled into the ark. We flee into Christ and in him we escape judgment. So the part that saves then what Peter is saying is not... Uh, the water, that's not what saves, it's the fleeing into Christ that the water represents that saves us. The spiritual transaction, if you will, that's taken place between God and a person when they believe. It's like baptism shows what has happened. Right? It's an appeal to God in this sense for a clean conscience. Which is another way of saying it is a demonstration of the fact that we've requested forgiveness for our sins And a new heart. Beloved, God's salvation allows, was meant to give you, and I, a clean conscience. I I suspect that if you could identify the number one thing that holds us back from having hope, it's that we don't have clean consciences. And I don't mean because we're constantly sinning. I mean because we just can't bring ourselves to believe that this gospel is true. I think that's probably where most of us really struggle. Has I, I would have hope if I thought that God actually loved me and really accepted me and all my sins, all of them were truly forgiven. Well, yeah, then I'd have hope. Beloved, they are believer. By a single sacrifice, Jesus took care of all of it. And He has perfected for all time those who are in this life being sanctified. It is finished, beloved. It is finished. You have every right through the accomplishment of Christ to a clean conscience. Believe it. Embrace it. Embrace it. If there's anything threatening our hope, it's not our techniques or our lack of this or that. In my opinion, it is that we don't believe. I think that's Peter's whole point here. Is to drive us toward the fact that you, you can hope, you have a clean conscience, it's, it's done. Stop carrying this burden that I got you 98% of the way there and you gotta make up the next 2%. No, you don't. That's not what living the Christian life is. It's not paying back a loan. It's enjoying a grant. Embrace it, beloved. Embrace it. Have a clean conscience. In the name of the risen Christ, by the Word of God, embrace a clean conscience, believer. Embrace it. That's what Jesus bought. Rest for our souls. That brings hope. That enables us. That causes us, by a spiritual reality, to obey His Word. No more guilt. Believer, when you sin, repent, run to Christ with it. Don't carry it around. It, it was that Psalm thirty-two. I wish I could remember it by heart. Like, blessed is he whose transgression is forgives sins are forgiven, whose transgression is covered. When I kept it in, my bones wasted away. I don't keep it in. Don't keep it in. The the, the blood of Christ is a river that flows farther than your sin. On June eighteenth, eighteen fifteen. One of the most famous battles in history took place on the mainland of Europe, and it was the Battle of Waterloo. Most everybody in here has heard about it. The, The French army, commanded by Napoleon, fought the Anglo, German, and Dutch forces that were led by the Duke of Wellington, and actually the Prussians, commanded by General Gebhard Blucher. What's interesting, though, for us is how the news of the results of that battle reached England in that time a ship sailed across the english channel to england's southern coast the news was then relayed as it had to be from the coast by signal flags all the way to london when the report finally got to london the flags on top of the winchester cathedral there that that were in place to give news by colors and signals that represented letters to spell out the news of Wellington's defeat of Napoleon to the whole city, as it was being put up, they got Wellington defeated. And in the the time it took to get there, a good old-fashioned London fog rolled in and covered it up. And so the only thing you could see in London was Wellington defeated. And the streets were a mess in London. It was based on incomplete information. They thought Napoleon had won. That would have been devastating news for England if Napoleon had won. And that's the news that started to spread everywhere. But then the fog began to lift. And the flags spelled out the whole triumphant message. Wellington defeated the enemy. And they were dancing in the streets in London. It was a huge defeat of one of the greatest enemies that nation had ever faced. Beloved... Don't let the fog of enduring sorrow while suffering unjustly cloud the news for you that Jesus Christ is risen and has ascended in glory. That's what fog does. It covers up the news. The world will rumble and sway. I don't know what kind of world, what kind of America my kids have. I don't know what kind of America I will have in the next ten years. Yeah. It might be awful. I don't know. It might be intense. I don't know. The world is going to rumble and sway. The fog is going to roll in. Don't be deceived by any of it, follower of Christ and child of God. Beloved of God. Don't be deceived by it. Don't be threatened by it. Don't have your hope shaken by it. Those who believe in Jesus for their salvation will endure through the rejection of the world and be vindicated along with Christ. That's the news. That's what the flags spell out. And nothing can change it. Nothing can undo it. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not ten years from now. Not a million years from now should the Lord tarry. You know, with the Lord is a, 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 a thousand days. is one year and one year is a thousand days. And you say, Lord, you know, what if the Lord waits ten thousand years? It's like He's saying, well, I can't wait five more minutes? Like, it's, not, it's just not the same, beloved. I don't know how long it's going to be. But His victory is your victory. That I do know. His vindication is our vindication. Because His perfect righteousness is our Righteousness. Beloved, believe the gospel. Believe it. Embrace by faith the beauty of a clean conscience. Because we haven't washed away the record. God has. When God cleans, it's successful. Listen, the worst the world can finally do to us is send us home. So don't be afraid. He forgives sinners this morning, beloved. That's what Jesus is doing in the midst of this world. Frantically screaming in the water, and Jesus is just driving the lifeboat around, pulling people out. Jesus gives hope because Jesus is hope. He forgives sinners. He gives life this morning. Repent of your sins. Come to Jesus. Jesus. Come to Jesus. Why would you stay away? Believe in Him and have rest. Believe in Him and be saved. I'm going to pray. June will come as we sing our last song. I'll be down here in the front willing to pray with any of you that need to come and pray for any reason. There are others that can come and pray with you as well if it is needed. So let me close. Father, I thank you so much for this finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the hope that we have that it is not a potential reality if we do something. It is a reality bought for us by Christ who has ascended. And one day, everything and everyone that oppresses us, if they do not call out to you, will find out that they have actually been in subjection to you all along. So, Lord, would you have your way in this place this morning, in this crowd? Lord, if if there are those who believe in you for salvation but are struggling, Lord, would you give them this morning the reasons for their hope? Would you defend, O Lord God, the reasons we can have hope as we look to you? And, Lord, if there are those this morning in here who have never come to Jesus Christ to save them, to be forgiven of their sins, to be restored to be given life and to be welcomed back into your home and to your table. Father, draw them, bring them, make them know their need, enable them to come. This I ask in the name of the risen and victorious Christ for us. Amen.